My name is Ben. As Jerry said, I'm the Noblesville campus pastor. Always excited to be here with you, and especially today as we continue in this series titled The End, where we're talking about and trying to answer some of the questions that people have about the end, like what significance does this have for my life? What can we know for sure? What maybe falls more into the area of speculation? What does the Bible have to say about this? This is a topic that has captivated people's attention throughout history. In fact, in a 2017 article written for Popular Mechanics of all places, an author named Avery Thompson highlighted some of the more prominent end times predictions that didn't pan out. And so in his article, he shares predictions from popes and astrologers and frightened colonists and televangelists all throughout the ages all of which obviously did not pan out. But one of these stories stood out to me as unique, and I want to share it with you this morning. Thompson writes this. He says, If you lived in Leeds around the turn of the 19th century, you might have had your fortune told by Mary Bateman. While most regarded her as a witch, she was really a con artist and a thief, but it's her chicken we're really interested in. In 1806, Bateman's hen began laying eggs that were carved with the words, Christ is coming, and people from all over traveled to see the end times prophesied by the poultry. Alas, this was just another con of Bateman's who took previously laid eggs carved them with acid, and then reinserted them into the chicken. I mean, can you imagine that poor chicken? Thompson finishes by saying this. He says, there are no winners in this story, but I think the chicken got the worst of it. And I would have to agree with his assessment, but the good news is this. We don't need to rely on chicken eggs or astrology or anything else when it comes to information about the end because God has already told us through his word everything that we need to know. And we realize that there may be different interpretations of the timing, the order of the events, uh, all of that kind of thing that we're going to read about, but there are at least four things that all Christians should agree on when it comes to the end. First, God has a plan. God has a plan. This isn't all random. We have not been left to chance. God has a very specific plan in mind. Second, Jesus will return. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. And so when we hear these very specific predictions, we can know that that person is a false prophet. Jesus will return, but we don't know when. Third, only two eternal destinations, heaven and hell. And fourth, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And I want to just acknowledge right up front that if you're new to the faith, new to church, newer to the Bible, some of what we're going to study today and even in the weeks to come might seem a little bit weird to you. And I want to acknowledge as well that you're right. Some of these things are a little bit weird. They're weird in the sense that, that they don't happen every day. They're not, they're not normal but I want you to also recognize that God is not limited by what is normal. He's not. It's not normal for a, a teenage girl to be pregnant when she's never been intimate with a man. That's not normal. It's not normal that, that God would take on flesh and live his life as one of us. That's not normal. 
It's not normal for people to die and then come back from the dead. That's not normal. But all of these things and others are core truths within the Christian faith. And so I think what we need to recognize right up front is that normal isn't the standard of validity. It's not. Our standard of validity as Christians is the Word of God. It's the Bible. And, and when it comes to prophecy, I want you to know this morning, the Bible is an extremely reliable source because it has already proved incredibly accurate. I want you to consider all of the prophecies about Christ's first coming, that he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, called out of Egypt, Hosea 11, that he would be betrayed, Zechariah 11, that he would suffer for sinners, Isaiah 53, and that he would die and come back to life, Psalm 16. And this is just a handful of the over 60-some prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ, all of which were fulfilled completely and accurately in Christ's first coming. And here's the crazy thing. It's estimated that about 20% of all of the Christian scriptures are prophecy. And of that 20%, a third or more have to do with the second coming of Christ. And so I want to suggest to you today that just as we can look and see that the Bible is extremely accurate on the teachings and prophecies of Christ's first coming, that we can know that its teachings and prophecies of Christ's second coming will be equally accurate. And I think that's really important to keep in mind as we study these passages. And today, specifically, as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you brought your Bible today, I want to invite you to turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, I want you to keep one of those as your own. It's our gift to you. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want to give you just a little bit of context. 1 Thessalonians is a letter that was written by Paul the Apostle to the church in Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is a, a town, a city that Paul had previously visited. If you want to learn about Paul's visit, you can read about it in Acts chapter 17. And what we know from Acts 17 is that Paul went there. He was having a fruitful ministry. He was sharing the hope of Jesus Christ. People were coming to saving uh, faith and knowledge of Jesus. But there were some Jews in Thessalonica who did not like what Paul was teaching. And so they started stirring up the people. They caused a riot in the town. And Paul had to escape under the cover of night. Uh, he had to cut his trip short, quite honestly. But he wanted to continue building into these new believers at Thessalonica. And so he did that by writing letters. And so we have 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul's letters to the church there. Now, one of the things that marked these first century believers was their firm belief that Jesus was coming back. And they believed that it would happen soon. They believed it could happen at any moment. But they were concerned because they had loved ones who had died. And so they were wondering, what about them? Will they be left out from what's to come? And so Paul wrote these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to explain what would happen. And starting in verse 13, Paul writes this. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And that is exactly what I hope to do for you today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you with these words. We have reason to be encouraged. And the first reason, if you're taking notes, is this. It's the return. It's the return. Jesus is coming back. In fact, in John chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going away. I'm going to leave, but if I leave, I'll also come back and take you so that you can also be where I am. And the early church was so excited about this, and they lived with such eager anticipation about the return of Jesus that they actually had a greeting that they would say to one another, and it was the word Maranatha. Maranatha, it means our Lord is coming. And so when two believers would pass on the road, or maybe they'd see each other in the marketplace, or they would meet together in one another's homes, they would say to each other, Maranatha, be encouraged. Jesus is coming. And they lived with this deep conviction and this joyful anticipation that Christ would soon return. My wife, Bethann, went on a trip last weekend. And uh, she went with a couple of her friends. They planned two nights away in Cincinnati for the homeschool convention. We homeschool our kids, and so that's an encouraging environment for her to be a part of. And so uh, they got their, their details all in a line. And then on Thursday, Beth got her jeans jumper ironed out and put her hair up in a bun, and off she went to the homeschool convention. That's a little homeschool humor for you. I, I just have to tell you, from the moment Beth left our home, there was eager anticipation for the moment when she would return, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. Things just don't work right when mom's not home. Things don't go smoothly. And, and we all kind of felt this eager anticipation of, man, when's mom going to be back? Now, Josiah is my youngest, my son. He's nine. And he certainly vocalized it more than anyone else. You know, is, is mom home yet? When's mom going to be home? Is she coming home today? When, what time is she going to You know, just like constantly on his heart and on his mind. But we were all feeling it like we just wanted mom to come home. And I have to imagine that that is to some small degree what these first century Christians were feeling. Like, like he's coming back. He's coming back. Don't forget. Like he's coming soon. Maranatha, our Lord, is coming. But here's what I've noticed. We don't really do that anymore, do we? And our greetings, there's so much more... Uh, bland, I guess. Like, they're, they're just not as meaningful. They're not as intentional. We see each other, and what do we say? Hey, right? Hey, what's up, right? What's going on? How are you doing? And, uh, and even if our worlds are imploding, like, we may be falling apart, what do we say back? I'm fine. It's good. I'm good, right? And it's just like these hollow, empty words, but I love the intentionality of the early church that, man, if, I, if I'm going to see a believer... I'm not going to miss that opportunity to let them know and just to encourage their heart. Our Lord is coming. Whatever's going on in your life right now, our Lord is coming. And I think we could take a cue from them on that. And this isn't meant to, to be a guilt trip, but I do want you to think about this. I want you to, to just consider, have you ever gone a whole day 
without thinking about the possibility that Christ could return. Have you ever gone a whole day without like that coming into view? Have you ever gone a whole week without thinking about it? What about a whole month? Like, is, it, is it ever on your mind? Is it something that you ever think about? Because, folks, this is our, this is our hope. Like this is, this is where all of our hope as believers in Christ rests. It's not in our, our money. It's not in our retirement. It's not in health. It's not in anything else. But the fact that Christ is coming and he has saved us and we're going to see him face to face. And I'll be honest, I can remember a time when, uh, when I, I, I didn't think about that. In fact, if I was honest with you, I would have to tell you that uh, I, I kind of hoped Christ wouldn't come back soon because there were still things I wanted to do and there were things I wanted to experience and things in this life that I just enjoyed. And I don't know if it's just part of, of getting older and, uh, or maybe growing in maturity with the Lord. I'm sure it has to do with both of those things, but I've just got to be honest with you. Like, there is nothing in this world, even the things I love the most, that I would not trade right now to see Christ face to face. Like, I just cannot wait for that moment. And I got to tell you, when, when I see him, I'm going to give him a big old hug. I mean, I, I think, we don't know what that's going to be like, right? But like, I just can't wait to put my arms around Jesus and just tell him, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I just cannot wait for that moment. And so here's something that I've put into practice. One of the things that, that I say frequently when I pray is, I just pray, come Lord Jesus. I'm ready when you are, but find me faithful until you do. Come, Lord Jesus, I'm ready when you are, but I want to be faithful until you come. And maybe that's the simple action step for you to, to start praying that too, reminding yourself on a daily basis that, that Christ is coming. And let's do a better job about reminding each other as well, right? Maranatha, he's coming back. And when he does, look at what Paul says will happen in verse 14. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And so he's telling the Thessalonians, listen, your loved ones who died in Christ, they're not going to be left out. God's going to bring with Jesus each and every one of them. And so then in verse 15, he says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, that's just poetic language for those who have died. But watch this. This is where it gets really interesting. In verse 16, it says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And what happens next? In verse 16, he says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, the dead in Christ will rise first. And it's important to recognize that the Bible describes two different resurrections. Paul is talking here about the first resurrection. The first resurrection is for those who were believers. They died in Christ. The second resurrection is for those who were not believers, and they will be resurrected later, and they will be judged very differently. Paul Mumaw talked uh, in greater detail about this last week, and so I would just encourage you, if you weren't here, go and listen to his message from last weekend. But here's a refresher, and here's what I want to make sure you don't miss this morning. Christians will be judged at what is known as the Bema Seat of Christ. And the Bema Seat is where Christians will be judged for their good works, and they will be rewarded for what they did on earth. Listen to me. The Bema Seat is not a judgment of salvation. Our works do not earn us salvation, but they do earn us reward in heaven. Again, listen to Paul's message. He laid all of this out, but I want you to hear me clearly. Salvation is settled. 
At the moment a person accepts Jesus and their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Non-Christians will be judged differently. They will be judged at the great white throne judgment. And if you are a Christian, you will not be there. Only non-Christians will be at the great white throne judgment. And they will be judged for their works, which will not be good enough to save them. And when their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, they will be eternally separated from God in a very real place called hell. Now, I don't like teaching about hell. It breaks my heart to think that the people who I love who are far from Christ could very possibly end up there. And so I want to follow up that truth with this. No matter what your past has been, no matter what your sins have been, no matter what your secrets are, Jesus Christ has paid the price for every sin you've ever committed. He loved you so much that he offered a way out of the white throne judgment that is coming. And you can put your trust in Christ today, surrender your life to him, and from this day forward, you can live without the fear of death. Why? Look at what Revelation 20 verse 6 says. It says, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. And why does he say that? Because the second death has no power over them. The second death has no power over them. If you're part of that first resurrection, you have a reason to go through this life with joy, looking forward to the return of Christ, because the second death has no power over you. Christ is coming, and that should encourage our hearts. The second thing is this. The second thing that I think should encourage us, if you're taking notes, is the rapture. The rapture. And the rapture is when living Christians are taken away. And I want to be clear about this as well. If the rapture is not something that fits within your end times view, that is okay. That is totally fine. There are a number of different views on this. I want to give you a little bit of my background. I grew up with what would be known as an amillennial view. And the amillennial view does not include the rapture. I didn't grow up believing that, that this was part of what would happen in the end. Uh, but the, the amillennial view essentially uh, views some of these passages as more figurative than literal. And so just put very, very simply for the, the sake of time, the amillennialist would look at the end times and say that all there is left to happen is Christ's second coming. And then at that moment, uh, all the dead, all the living, all of everybody immediately move into the spiritual kingdom. Okay, for reward and for punishment, that is the same. But the, the timeline and the events are a little bit different. But no rapture in the amillennial view. And that's what I grew up with. In more recent years, and as I've kind of studied this on my own within, I would say, the last five to ten years, I've been uh, pulled over to more of what is known as the premillennial view. And the premillennial view does include the rapture. And honestly, I don't like the word rapture. I don't like that phrase for what's described here because that word isn't in the Bible. And I think we should use Bible words for Bible things. But when they were deciding what to call these things, they didn't ask me. And so it's called the rapture. It is what it is. But there's the amillennial view, which does not believe in the rapture. There's the premillennial view, which does include the rapture. And then there's the panmillennial view, which is all of the people who don't know, they just think it's going to pan out in the end. And some of you would say, that, that's me, I'm a panmillennialist. And again, I want you to hear me on this. Like there are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, heaven-bound followers of Christ 
who believe the amillennial view, the premillennial view, preterist, like all of the views that are out there. If you, can, if you can back it up biblically, if you can make an argument for it, I just want you to know that's fine. These aren't essentials. I'm just telling you one view. It happens to be my view, and here's a big reason why. Look at Paul's next words in verse 17. Paul says, after that, And so he's pointing back to what he's just said. After the dead in Christ rise first, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I want you to pay attention specifically to those first two words on that second line, the words caught up. In the Greek, it's one word, harpazo, and it literally means to be seized to be snatched or to be taken away to safety. This is what Paul says will happen uh, to believers who are still alive when Christ comes. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are living will be taken away to safety. It's a picture of rescue. Christ will rescue his church. In fact, Jesus describes it this way in Matthew 24, verse 39. Jesus said, this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. So you must also be ready, verse 44, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Listen, this is really important because Christ will return. That trumpet is going to sound. And Jesus told us, you've got to be ready for this. You've got to be ready. Maybe in our current context, it looks more like this. Two people sitting at their desks, working away. One is taken, one is left. A family of four sitting at dinner together, enjoying a meal. Three are taken, one is left. Or maybe even like right here at church on a Sunday morning, two people sitting together, one is taken, the other is left. But Christ will return, and when he does, if you have surrendered your life to him, you will be rescued. You will be taken away to safety. So let's be ready. Let's be watching. Maranatha, our Lord is coming. One more thing that should encourage our hearts, and it's this. It's the reunion. If you're taking notes, write it down. The reunion. And what's going to happen at the reunion? Well, Paul tells us in the second half of verse 17. Here's what he says. He says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. We'll be with the Lord forever. Be encouraged today. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, you can know that a day is coming, and I believe it's coming soon, when you and I will be with God forever. And I know that Paul Mumaw spent a good amount of time on this passage last week, but I want to remind you again this morning what this is going to be like. It's John's words from Revelation 21. In his vision of heaven, John said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And man, if that doesn't encourage your heart this morning, if that doesn't bring you joy and excitement and increase your longing for Jesus, I don't know what will. Because folks, listen, this is the whole point of God sending his son, of Jesus taking on flesh, 
saying no to his flesh throughout his entire life, always saying yes, always pleasing the Father, living a perfect holy life so that he could be a sacrifice for your sins and mine, that he could take God's wrath on him so that you and I could go free, not so that we could live comfortable lives here on earth, but so that one day we could leave this broken earth and be with him forever. Don't be distracted by the things of this world. Don't let your heart be troubled by temporary things. Let's encourage one another with these words. He is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He will rescue us, and when he does, we will be with him forever. I want to close this morning with Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Same writer, different audience, different letter, but this is going to give us some clear application. What does Paul tell us to do with all this? Well, listen. He says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now the application, I want you to listen. What are we supposed to do, to do with this? Verse 58, Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, first Paul says, stand firm. Write it down. It's the first application. Christ is coming. He's going to rescue his people. When he does, we'll be with him forever. So let's stand firm. Let nothing move you. What does that mean? Well, that means when temptation comes and temptation is coming, and you look at that thing, and it looks good. Because if it didn't look good, it wouldn't be temptation, right? But you look at that thing, and what do you do? You stand firm. Something better is coming, and you say, I don't need that, because Christ will be here soon. And you stand firm when the doctor's report is less than favorable, and you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God can heal your body, heal your kids, heal your spouse, and he will do it either in this life or in the life to come. But you stand firm knowing that death has no victory over those who are in Christ. And because Christ has defeated death, it has no sting. So you stand firm and you let nothing move you. And when the stress of this life boils over and you are so overwhelmed with work or family or relationships or past mistakes or grief or whatever it might be, you stand firm and you remember that Christ is coming and he will rescue you. This trouble will not last forever. Christ is coming soon and you will be with him forever. Don't give in to despair. Don't let anything move you. You stand firm. That's the first thing. The second is this. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Paul says we are to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because we know that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. And those of you who are, are putting this into practice, trying to put it into practice, I'm trying to put it into practice. We know that sometimes it feels like it's in vain, doesn't it? 
Sometimes it feels like the, the work that we do, the good that we're a part of, like, is this mattering for anything? Does, does what I do, does what I say, the way I'm trying to glorify the Lord, does it matter? Paul says, yes, it matters. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because each one of us has been given a choice. And we can live our lives in a way that will mean nothing in eternity. Or we can live our lives for the glory of God, giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And Paul says a life like that is not lived in vain. In fact, some of Paul's most well-known words, and I think the mantra of his life, were to live as Christ, but to die as gain. To live as Christ, but to die as gain. But do you know what he said next? He said, as long as I'm going to be living in this body, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. I want to go home. I want to see the Lord. I want him to come back. But until he does, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. And I hope that it will mean fruitful labor for you. I'm trying to make sure it means fruitful labor for me, that as long as I have breath in these lungs, as long as I'm still kicking, that I am pushing forward the gospel of Jesus and I am striving to labor for the Lord. What's that look like? Well, it's, it's all about telling others the good news of Jesus. It's sharing the gospel, recognizing that we have very limited time. Christ could come at any moment, and that fact should be a catalyst for us to tell everyone we come in contact with, listen, there's hope. Christ is coming. He has offered you rescue. There's still time. Receive Christ. It should, it should look like the work of making disciples. It's simply pouring yourself, pouring your life, pouring Christ into others and, and seeing them become better and better disciples. It's serving. It's loving. It's giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And all the while, all the while remembering Jesus is coming. His rescue is coming with him. And when he comes, we will be with him forever. Be encouraged by that this morning. Maranatha, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much that even while I was still sinning, Christ died for me. Your word says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, that's, that's so amazing and it's so critical because there's nothing that we could do in our sin to, to come back into a right relationship with you. There's nothing short of the blood of Jesus that would bring about forgiveness and reconciliation and new life, Father, and, and new life is what we needed. And so I thank you for sending your one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Father, thank you for the hope of Jesus this morning. With every eye still closed and every head bowed, I, I just want to speak to those of you in the room who have not made a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You've not surrendered your life to him. You've probably looked at your life and thought, I, I'm a pretty good person. Like I think it'll all just pan out in the end. I talk to so many people who just think, well, if, if somebody as good as me can't get into heaven, I don't know who can. I'm telling you, you are going to stand before Jesus one day and you are going to present those good works to him and they are going to look like filthy rags before the throne of God. But the good news of the cross is that we don't have to rely on our works to be saved. And you can make a choice today to lay that down, to surrender your life. Maybe pray a prayer that goes something like this. Father, I've sinned against you. My sin has separated me from you. 
and there's nothing that I can do to ever be good enough to come back into a right relationship with you. But because of your love, you sent Jesus to die the death I deserve, to pay the penalty for my sin, and I receive his free gift of forgiveness today. I want to be a new creation. And you can pray a prayer like that, or you can just say amen to my prayer. And you can be welcomed into the family of God today. And you can live this day and every day from here to eternity with hope, with encouragement, looking forward to the return of Christ and joining in the work with us. But Father, for my brothers and sisters here today who maybe made that commitment a long, long time ago or maybe just even days or weeks ago, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged by these words, that we would not be troubled by the temporary things of this world as overwhelming as they are, as real as the situations are, Father, they are temporary and you are coming. Your rescue is coming with you and we will be with you forever. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.